ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In the 70s, Australia produced almost 80% of the world's sapphires, with many of the gems dug up by hand by miners fossicking for them in New South Wales and in Queensland. How do you go about choosing a, a place to dig, Ron? You're looking for uh, billies. It's a natural trap for the sapphires and heavies and any other materials that indicate sapphires. This one's a good indication. It's a fairly hefty billy. I haven't even found what size it is yet because it's God knows how far through. Don't know how far it's going to be through the other side, but hopefully it's a big one and hopefully the, the sapphires get stuck in that. Queensland sapphire miners like Ron to this day still chip away underground to unearth the expensive blue stones that are sent across the world to be set in expensive jewellery. But miners fear this way of life is in jeopardy. Today in Australia Wide, we're going to head to the sapphire fields of Queensland. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. But we're going to start much further afield, and that's in the Antarctic. A Senate inquiry into the work of the Australian Antarctic Programme is just wrapping up, and it was digging into the massive budget blowouts by the programme, the staff turnover, and an icebreaker vessel that couldn't refuel because it was simply too big. Now, if you're perplexed, so am I. Our reporter, Clancy Balin, attended this week's inquiry. So, Clancy, what were the issues that were raised this week? Over the course of the hearings, some familiar themes did arise, namely fears from within the AAD that research projects would be affected, but also stories of severe stress and unhappiness from people um, within the division who are working under budget constraints. Um, On the first day, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Tasmania, Rufus Black, revealed it had been a decade since AAD scientists had been on the sea ice in East Antarctica, and he also revealed that funding for the Southern Ocean Observation System, which is a a Hobart-based data network for international researchers, the funding was unreliable and, he said, threatened our geopolitical interests. Uh, We also heard stories from union members within the division who spoke about the dread they felt coming into the office. They spoke of a culture of secrecy around project funding, um, which they said was used as a bullying tactic. Although one member did concede the new head, Emma Campbell, the new head of the division, was turning the ship around slowly. And an esteemed Antarctic scientist who has been with the division for two decades, Professor Dana Bergstrom said she left her role there after her dentist told her she'd ground down four of her molars from stress. Here's what Professor Bergstrom had to say. How do I say this? All my career, the Australian Antarctic Program has had deep patriarchy. Um, And you just deal with that. Um, Now it's patriarchy plus patronage. That's Professor Dana Bergstrom. She certainly sounds stressed saying that. What was the kind of atmosphere in the room, Clancy? The atmosphere was, it would oscillate between a tense one to uh, confusion from the senators who were really trying to work out whether these had been 
cuts. Um, I should say as well, there is some important context to consider here um, that fed into that environment. The AAD has been under scrutiny already this year. Uh, an independent review of workplace culture within the division found one in four female staff respondents had experienced workplace sexual harassment, uh, with the majority on Antarctic stations. Um, and that followed a study released last year, which highlighted a widespread predatory culture at the Antarctic Station, um, a culture of bullying, uh, a boys' club mentality at the head office in Hobart. Um, So that's one important piece of context. Uh, The other one that I I shouldn't miss is that Australia's new icebreaker vessel, the RSV Noyena, is a really important piece of this story. It, It cost half a billion dollars to, to build. It's based in Hobart, but it will now have to sail to the north coast of Tasmania to refuel because it's not allowed under the bridge in uh, Hobart, uh, the Tasman Bridge. Um, and that's because the vessel has a, a high degree of side slip, or in other words, it, it presents a high risk when passing under the bridge. Um, so with all this in mind, the senators were really keen to understand what the impacts of cuts to the AAD would mean across all of these issues. This icebreaker thing, I mean, the mind boggles that that wasn't worked out beforehand. It is surprising. I mean, it was one of the more surprising moments. Uh, That actually came from the CEO of Tazports, Andrew Donald, uh, who revealed the AAD and Australian government had actually been aware from 2018 what dimensions the new icebreaker needed to be to pass under Hobart's bridge safely. Uh, Mr Donald said he was perplexed. Uh, by the AAD's lack of foresight there. So given the the serious nature of what came up um, in the Senate inquiry, what did the Australian Antarctic Division have to say for themselves? Well, several senior officials were, were questioned on Thursday, but none would concede that the $25 million reduction was a cut. Uh, Miss Campbell, the head of the division, said she was working closely with the Tasmanian government to find a solution to the Noyena's refuelling issue, um, although she wouldn't say if it would come at the cost of the taxpayer. And the department's deputy secretary, Sean Sullivan, told the inquiry while the Noyena was out of action due to mechanical issues at the start of this year, the department budgeted for two ships to replace it. But look, it was Mr Sullivan that did reveal one important thing that we can't miss. In his words, the division last year had overspent extraordinarily by $42 million last year. Um, Here's what he said about that in the inquiry. The issue around having to live within the budget that was forecast uh, was was, uh, in front of us. Um, Having certainty around the Noena uh, as our single platform for, for the 23-24 season gave us that platform to work from and, and all credit to the operations team for delivering that in, in, uh, in record time. Uh, I think the issue that, that where I think you're leading, us, leading me to is, is to say that... What leading that you to? I'm asking you, I'm asking you directly. Trimming was, was, as I said last year, uh, the division uh, overspent extraordinarily. And, and uh, part of that was because uh, of needing to have two ships, uh, which wasn't ideal, and increased aviation. And it was way beyond what the budget was actually provided for. How much was I, the overspend, Mr Sullivan? Uh, $42 million. 
That was um, a penny-dropping moment, I'd imagine. That was Sean Sullivan, the Deputy Secretary of the Federal Department of Climate Change, Environment and Water. Uh, certainly you can hear the tension in, room, in the room, there's no doubt. Clancy, what's going to happen next? So you've had two days of hearings. What's the next step? Well, the uh, the hearings have wrapped up. Uh, Senator Wish Wilson was fairly explicit in his statement after the inquiry finished up yesterday. Uh, he said going into the inquiry, he knew the division was dysfunctional, but he could never have imagined just how toxic the situation had become. The senators who were present at a press conference yesterday in Hobart were very keen to stress just how seriously they take this. Um, as surreal as it might be to see senators from across the political spectrum stand shoulder to shoulder during a presser and deliver similar talking points, it's worth remembering that Australia is considered a leader in Antarctic research. You know, our geographic proximity, our resources mean that the country is well placed to continue to be a leader in this space. Um, I think what yesterday showed us is it's clear that our politicians think the Australian Antarctic Division's reputation is worth protecting. Clancy Ballin in Hobart. Thanks very much for bringing us up to date on Australia Wide. Thank you for having me. ABC Australia Wide. As you've heard on Australia Wide, in recent weeks, the Australian Electoral Commission has been travelling across the country, conducting remote polling ahead of the voice referendum on October 14th. And this week, they've visited Aboriginal communities in the APY lands, a vast, sparsely populated desert region in northwest South Australia. Alice Springs reporter Lara Stimson travelled to the remote community of Indulcana to hear their thoughts on the up-and-coming referendum. In this remote Centrelink office, trestle tables and chairs are being set up. And a banner loosely tied to the bull bar of a four-wheel drive parked out the front. The Australian Electoral Commission has rolled into Indulcana, also known as Iwancha, 415 kilometres south of Alice Springs in the Anangul Pichinjara Yakanajara region, the APY lands. It's time for this remote community to vote in the referendum. But many of the locals here don't really know what they're voting for, like Arundel man Robert Kenny. I don't really know about the boys, but, you know, this is the first time I'm here to speak about the boys and, you know, what it, what it really means. I just roughly just said yes, so maybe something might be different coming on. I don't know. I hope so. Robert wants better infrastructure for Indulcana, like a fence around the church grounds and speed bumps on the roads. And he wants better outcomes for the young people in his community. I'd like to see something different, changes coming up for the community. Instead of going the same way every day, doing the same old things, I'd like to see something different. That's all I wanted to see especially for my grandkids and all of our grandkids, for everyone here that's in the community. They like to see changes too. Yakanajara woman Vicky Cullinan is the chairperson of the community of Indelkana. She's also a prolific and award-winning artist. Hunched over her latest work at the Awancha Arts Centre, Vicky shares about her community and how little information they've received about the referendum. They don't really know what's... About the boys. As a community leader, she, like Robert, wants a stronger future for young people in the APY lands. 
Juan and we'll do that for every young people in the slaughter. Because we really need um, government people to support the communities for young children when they grow up and for everyone else that lives here in Ibiwa lands. As the day rolls on, more and more locals trickle into the voting room to cast their ballot. A group of eager Yes 23 campaigners and interpreters hover around the entrance, the only campaigners present at the site. So you've got like some of the big names here, like Sammy Wilson, you've got Rainey, like there's a few people Voters sit to have a yarn with the campaigners who argue the yes case with no rebuttal available. As local Pichinjara Yakanajara woman Anne Ward shares, her people haven't really heard about the voice before. They don't know really because when we talk to them, they will say yes or we are. But we will talk to them. Anne has a brother with a disability and prides herself on looking after him and helping to keep Indulkana clean and tidy. She hopes her vote will get her community the support they need. I need more help, that's all. So if Anang will say yes, they are looking at like more, more, more help from government. As the day passes in Indulkana, the number of people walking through the doors of the remote voting centre wanes. Campaigners head out in their cars to speak to people at their homes, encouraging them to come down and cast their vote. It's a word-of-mouth affair attracting the crowd, who, as Anne shares, had only just found out the AEC were coming. Did you know they were coming? Mm, oh. Yeah, yeah? Oh. When did um, you find out? Uh, this morning. The Australian Electoral Commission will keep travelling around the APY lands, setting up remote voter centres in some of the country's most isolated communities. But in Indulkana, locals will remain, concerned for their community and hopeful for change. I hope it's good, you know. I hope, it's, I hope it'll be good. If we say all, probably, probably everything will change. I hope so. Yeah. Arundel man Robert Kenny ending that story from Alice Springs reporter Lara Stimson. This is ABC Australia Wide. Queensland is home to one of the largest sapphire fields in the world, and prospectors have been mining the bluestones there since the 19th century. Working the fields is hot, hard, and dirty, but miners say it's a way of life that gets under the skin. What's the particular attraction in mining versus your days as a motor mechanic? Underground, I guess it's nice and peaceful. There's nobody here to hassle you. Normally, I work down here till I am exhausted. And then you go upstairs with the, the, the feeling of having fulfilled your, your obligation to yourself. You've worked as hard as you can. You know you haven't slacked on it. You know, you've done your own thing. Queensland Sapphire miner Ron being interviewed in the 1980s by the ABC. But now miners fear proposed reforms will turn the gem region into a ghost town. It's part of a state government plan to crack down on people living on mining claims without actually shifting any dirt. Jasmine Hines has the story from Rockhampton. We're absolutely devastated. Amber Betteridge and her husband moved their young family to Queensland's gem fields two years ago, where they make a living mining, cutting sapphires and selling them on social media. We absolutely have given up everything to come out here. And for us, it's our way of life. We love living here. We love doing this lifestyle. 
They make enough to comfortably support the family of four, but Miss Betteridge fears a new proposal limiting mining claim tenures will destroy their livelihood. We love the lifestyle out here and we don't want to give it up. But, you know, these changes really do make it unstable. If this all goes through, it's going to make it really difficult for people to live here. There is a lot of people living on mining claims and it's the way of life out here. You know, with these changes, you can just see that in 15 years' time, the Gemfields will be a ghost town. The Queensland Resources Department released a discussion paper late last month with a proposal to cap mining claim tenures to a maximum period of 15 years. After that, any extension would be at the discretion of the Resources Minister. That's just ridiculous. We are out here digging with, um, you know, picks and shovels and small mining claims can be sustainably mined for 100 years. It's not something that you can do in 15 years. But Queensland Resources Minister Scott Stewart says the changes would support genuine miners. It's about protecting those small-scale miners, but it's also making sure that the uh, the cowboys aren't getting in and just uh, setting up um, uh, their own homes or their own houses or building houses without any intent of doing any small-scale mining. The state government has been reviewing issues with small-scale mining for almost two years. In November last year, it put out a reform proposal document and invited the public to provide submissions. But Miss Betteridge says that feedback was ignored. It seems like it was a complete waste of time. I know a lot of people out here who provided feedback um, and we all provided the exact same feedback that the changes to the the main the main point is that there is no real reason to change the tenures the resources minister says the feedback allowed the government to add a clause to extend the claims beyond the 15 years if they're doing the right thing by working those mines and and you know um, being able to source the the gems or the opals that they're looking for then it's, a, it's going to be a pretty simple process to be able to get that renewal because it's about ensuring that people are doing the right thing on those claims. But gem miners have raised concerns the power to grant an extension would rest with a single person. Nicholas von Alvenschlieben owns two mining claims in the gem fields. He says reforms should focus on compliance. So the miners have to submit much more accurate and in-depth progress reports to actually demonstrate that they are genuinely mining. So if they, if they genuinely want to solve the problem to stop people living out there, more progress reports, more photo evidence of what people are actually doing, I would, and more inspections. If the Re- Department of Resources has the staff to do more inspections, by all means, they should send people out, go and check what people are digging. Mr von Alvenschlieben says it's virtually impossible to dig a claim in 15 years. It takes the time it takes to digging two metres of depth of material. Is, it is a very slow and long process. So it would be nice that maybe the department sees or understands the actual work that goes into mining these. It's, it's not machine mining. It's not people sitting on diggers pressing buttons. This is done by hand um, and it's a lot of work. He's worried the changes will mean hand mining in the gem fields will no longer be viable. It's very sad considering that it is a... It's one of the. It's a very unique location and opportunity. It's in. It's very Australian activity to be able to go and peg a mining claim. This sort of thing doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. So it's quite. It's a privilege and really a very Australian privilege to, to be able to do this. Consultation on the latest proposal closes in December. Jasmine Hines reporting there from Rockhampton. You're listening to Australia Wide.
on ABC Radio. Finally, we're going to head to the wheat belt of Western Australia, where a dog graveyard is attracting tourists from across the globe. It's become so popular, it's even been expanded. Brianna Fiore visited the special resting place in Corrigan. Dog cemeteries, how normal are they? Um, well, growing up in Courage, and I thought dog cemeteries, every town had one. I thought they were completely normal, but it turns out they're not. <laughs> we're at the Courage and Dog Cemetery, about 200 kilometres southeast of Perth. Don't worry, they're not ghost dogs. That's Gwenda Reynolds' dog, Vinny. Oh, Vinny's come up to, um, to uh, check out his plot, if he can find one. Vinny, turn around. No, he doesn't want to turn around. He, uh, Vinny came to us because he was handed in. He was on a farm and I believe he was misbehaving on the farm with some of the sheep. So um, he was handed into the vet, local vet, who rang us because we'd just lost our third dog and we got Vinny. Aww. And he's very special. He's gorgeous. Gwenda has three of her beloved pets buried at the Corrigan Dog Cemetery. Our first one is right behind us over there, Harvey. And he was a black lab crossed with an Irish setter, beautiful dog. He probably died four, four years ago, I'd say. Well, Harvey was the first we had. We brought him from Kalamunda when we moved down here. He was a just big, gentle giant of a dog. And then we had two little Maltese poodles, brother and sister. And Benny died in 2020, and he's buried on the other side. And sadly, Bella died this year and she's buried not far from Benny. Obviously losing a dog can be really hard. Is this a way that people can grieve? Oh, I believe so, yes. Uh, I know a man who's been coming up here for a long, long, long time, every morning, to uh, have a chat to his dog. Yeah, it's just a really nice place to leave your dog. What started as one man's tribute to his dog has now turned into a graveyard with about 200 canines. Can't understand why other towns don't have it. I mean, it's man and best friend. What do you do with your dog? You don't just chuck it in the bin. So old Paddy Wright, in 1974, he decided he wanted to do something good with his best mate. So he went up to the Shire and said, where can I bury my dog? And they said to him, well, the sand's pretty soft out the road there. Just go chuck him out there. And, of course, he did that. And then another bloke, then another guy. And this is back in 1974. And by the time the 80s came, like, you know, we had a bit of a cemetery happening. So that's when it became a little bit famous, I suppose. So people started taking a bit of pride in it and grew from there. I think, like, every, every town has something that no one else has and they claim to fame. It never ventured out that way from the start. I think we've got it, we've embraced it. Actually, I think the rest of the country's embraced it more than what we did. And hence, it became part of a tourist attraction we're not a touristy town, uh, we're just a farming town and this is probably the closest thing we've got to anything touristy to fame. Carly Kenny from the Corrigan Guest House says it's attracting tourists from around the world. Yeah, we have a lot of different people from all around the world and around the country that come to stay. Um, lots of international people, then we have runs of retirees from the eastern states, um, families, all sorts of people. And Raylene Button from the town's caravan park says the same. It brings people in, they come in, they have a cup of coffee and a cake, come out, have a look at the headstones, visit all the pets that we have here. Everyone comes in and asks, where's the dog cemetery? And 
we give them directions and a little map. They are intrigued about it and seeing the headstones, they just can't believe how amazing it is. Jun Wan is visiting the graveyard and says it's very unique. Well, I think it's a good place to to show human relationship with our dogs. Yeah. And do you have any dog cemeteries in China? No, 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 no not at all. We we usually have no. Well, I ca- I cannot see uh, any place like this out of out of in Western Australia or out of Korea. The cemetery, which sits between the Golden Canola Fields, became so popular that it even had to be expanded. A nearby farmer generously donated their land. And there's also a cat at the dog cemetery, but nobody knows how that snuck in. As for Vinny, Gwenda says he's still got plenty of time before he makes the move up here. (laughs) Not for a while yet, he's only six. Thanks to Brianna Fiore for that story from Corrigan in Western Australia. I'll have to go and have a look. And that is Australia Wide for this week. Thanks to Asha Couch for all of her producing this week. I'll be back with you again next week. I hope you have a lovely weekend. Cheerio. ABC Listen.